here. Luke chapter 16, we're going to pick this up in verse 19. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 19 through 31, the rest of the chapter. You follow along. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, and now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them that they will not come also to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. On on, uh, September 1st, 1983, Korean Airlines flight 007 left Anchorage, Alaska at 4 a.m. It was continuing its flight from New York. 269 passengers and crew aboard the flight. They had eight hours left before they would reach Seoul, South Korea. The plane was functioning fine as it left New York, no problems. Landed no problems in Anchorage. Took off with no problems from Anchorage. However, there was apparently a problem that had developed between the automatic pilot and the flight navigation system that none of the flight officers recognized. Something was slightly off. At the first navigational beacon in Bethel, Alaska, which is about 397 miles from Anchorage, the flight was 12 miles north of where it should have been. Two hours later, it was 100 miles north of its intended flight path, and the gap was widening. Five hours into flight, the Boeing 747 was now 200 miles north of its intended course and still heading in the wrong direction. Rather than flying toward Seoul, South Korea, the plane was actually headed toward Siberia in the Soviet Union. But worse than that, the plane had flown directly overhead of two top-secret Soviet installations, one on the Kamchatka Peninsula and one on an island just off of the coast of mainland Russia, a a route known to be flown daily by American spy planes. Well, believing it to be spy planes, the, the Russians sent up Some interceptor jets, the plane was headed directly toward the Russian mainland, specifically toward a major naval base in Vladivostok, the home of the Pacific Fleet, the Soviet Pacific Fleet. 
The Russian RU-15 interceptors caught up to the jet, still too dark to identify it. And at 6.26 a.m., the lead uh, pilot for the Russian uh, interceptor fired two missiles. One tore off the tail section of the airplane. The other ripped holes in the side of the fuselage and the Korean airline crashed in the sea 30 miles from the Russian mainland. Obviously, all 269 people on board died. It was a deadly tragedy and resulted in outrage from many world leaders. And it was a tragic event, to be sure. And as tragic as it is to lose 269 people in a plane crash, and especially one as terrible as that, when it's been shot down, there are theological errors that are taking place around the world today that are putting millions of people not only off course in their life, but putting them in grave danger and they're going to die and spend eternity in hell. The doctrine of hell is not popular in many churches today. To preach about hell by many has been deemed to be unloving, unkind, It reminds people of their parents or their grandparents' church and the hellfire and brimstone preachers and, and, and society thinks we're beyond that. We don't need to hear those things. In the modern church growth era, preaching about wrath and judgment just doesn't make people feel good. And because it doesn't make them feel good, it doesn't find its place in the repertoire of many preachers today. Many churches and Many preachers want to leave the subject of hell in the, in the theological textbooks and let people look it up there if they want to know more about it. Well, that's a reflection of society's view of hell. Our society, while many still believe in hell, most believe it's not a place that only unbelievers go or that unbelievers go at all. They think it's just for those who live wicked lives and die before they can be sorry for living a wicked life. According to Pew Research, and done in 2015, only 58% of the U.S. population believes in hell, and they just believe if you die without being sorry for sin, then you go to hell. But if you're sorry for it at some point along the line, then you don't have to go. As happens, what society believes eventually makes its way into the church and then into seminaries and then into textbooks. So many pastors choose not to preach about hell or they don't preach about it as an eternal punishment or even make it uh, even known because to talk about hell makes God look bad. There's preachers that want to protect God's reputation somehow and don't want God to look bad, so they magnify God's love while minimizing God's wrath. This is morphed into denying the Bible's teaching on eternal hell in general. The thought is that if God is all loving, He would never punish somebody for eternity. That seems like overkill. All they, if they lived 70 or 80 years and they sinned in all 70 or 80 years, how could thousands of years of, or more millennia of punishment be worthy of the crime? That's kind of the reasoning. And I submit to you, well, they don't under, really understand the crime. They really don't understand the holiness of God. 
some have begun to teach that, well, God will allow people in hell to be saved because that seems more loving than eternity. They will say that there's a second chance, that people go to hell, God will give them a second chance. So making hell effectively God's timeout chair. So you, you die without Christ, you just go to the timeout chair for a while, and eventually you can get out and join the rest of the people in heaven. Others are teaching that hell is uh, just for the very worst in the world, the mass murderers, the child molesters and the such. And society, by the way, gets to determine who the worst is. Because if you had asked them a hundred years ago who are the worst, it's a very different definition from what you'll get today, of who are the very worst in society. So it's only for the worst, and then society gets to determine who that is. And as the standard changes, I guess those people that were under the previous standard, maybe they get paroled. Others have just resorted to, we'll just teach universalism. That is, everybody gets saved. Eventually, everybody gets saved. All roads literally lead to heaven at some point. And others just do away with the concept altogether and just say hell doesn't even exist. It was just invented to scare people into living a right kind of life. Well, while the perversion of biblical teaching seems as an attempt by many to spare God's reputation in the world, they miss the point completely. God's wrath is a vital part of the gospel message. God's wrath and eternal punishment are the reasons Jesus died on the cross. See, if there is no hell, there's no need for Jesus to die on a cross. If there's no eternal punishment, if there's no hell, then why did he die? What's the point? If there's no hell, then Jesus was a fool. Because he allowed himself to be crucified for nothing. If everybody goes to heaven anyway, or if there's no eternal punishment, then what's the point? Why do, why even have the Bible? What difference does it make? It doesn't change anything. If everyone's fate is ultimately the same, then we're all just wasting our time. To ignore what the Bible says about hell is to ignore the need for the cross. It also ignores the victory that was achieved on the cross. By defeating sin and death, Jesus defeats the devil, defeats death. Jesus didn't minimize the reality of hell and he didn't avoid the subject. In fact, Jesus spoke about hell more than twice as much as the rest of the New Testament combined. Almost everything we know about hell, we learn from Jesus. And if Jesus spoke about hell, then we ought to pay attention to what he has to say. While the Pharisees that Jesus was speaking to did believe in eternal life, they believed in punishment, they did believe in hell, they did not believe that they would go there. They believed, first of all, that they were God's favorite children. As, as children of Abraham anyway, they believed that that excluded them from hell. They got almost an automatic pass to heaven. But based on their self-righteousness, their ability to externally keep certain laws, they believed that that would get them into heaven. And as proof, they would look at their wealth. 
They would look at everything that they owned and say, look at everything that we own. And because we own so much, that is God's stamp of approval on our life. That is proof that God loves us and that we're therefore golden. We get to go to heaven. No problems whatsoever. In fact, in that time, if you were wealthy, other than the tax collectors, if you were a wealthy Jew, that was almost a guarantee that you were righteous. And if you were sick or you were diseased or you were poor, that was God's declaration that you were wicked. So they saw the rich as righteous and the poor as pathetic and wicked. So Jesus is going to give this parable to destroy their theology that wealth equals righteousness. They believe that God was impressed and Jesus is about to show them your money means nothing in eternity. He's going to give this parable about the rich man and the poor man. Both die and in complete opposite to what the Pharisees will expect. The rich man wakes up in hell and the poor man wakes up in heaven. Their eternal fate has nothing to do with what they possessed on this earth. It has everything to do with their response to the scripture. The parable breaks down pretty easily into three different realities. They're the the difference in their life, the difference in their death, and the difference in their eternity. So we start with the parable of the two men, the rich man and Lazarus. Now many of you have been taught that this is not a parable. You've been taught that this is a true story. There's basically three reasons why it's been declared to be a true story and not a parable. The first one is, well, the name Lazarus. This would be the only parable that Jesus uses a proper name. And the argument is, because he uses a proper name, it's a real person. It's not uh, a parable. And it's true that Jesus didn't name a specific person in any other parable. He did use proper names in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the proper name for Jerusalem and Jericho, which were proper names, real places that existed. So the argument that he uses the name Lazarus isn't very strong. And Ezekiel uses real proper names in Ezekiel 23 in a parable there. A second reason is, is the desire to defend the existence of hell. If it's not a parable, then we we see a glimpse into the real hell and we can preach it as real. Well, even as a parable, we can still do that because Jesus never used unreal things in any parable. For instance, he never talked about mermaids or ogres living under a bridge or houses made out of gingerbread. Everything that Jesus used were real things. Man sowing seeds in a field, um, a wedding feast, um, uh, the, a vineyard, things that were real, things that people could relate to on a regular basis, just like they could relate to a real rich man and a real poor man. And the third reason that is given is verse 19 begins with the words, now there was a rich man. And the argument goes like this. Well, he's saying there was a rich man. That's proof that he actually existed. And this is not a parable. Well, the verses leading up to this are the parable of the shrewd servant. No one, no real theologian disagrees that it's a parable. And verse one says, there was a rich man. It's exactly the same words just missing the word, now there was a rich man. But in Greek, it's the exact same phrase. So that doesn't work anyway. It is a parable. It's a parable, and it has all the earmarks of a parable. And besides that, it is the fifth in a line of six parables strung one on top of the other. It would make no sense for Jesus to tell four parables, one true story, and then another parable. 
all in the same instance. It's a parable. But nevertheless, you can believe that it's a real life story, not a parable, and you can still go to heaven. You have to sit in the back, but you can you can go. The parable contrasts the unnamed rich man and the poor man named Lazarus. In this parable, Jesus draws back the curtain of hell and gives the audience a glimpse of the fiery pit that is reserved for those who reject him. And he shows the uses the parable to show the Pharisees that they have the wrong perspective on worldly wealth. They think their worldly wealth is God's stamp of approval, and Jesus is about to show them that is no guarantee of salvation. I mentioned there's three distinctions. The distinction between life, death, and after death. So we start with the distinction of their life. They were distinct in life. Back to verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The rich man is unnamed. He remains unnamed throughout the parable. Well, why is he unnamed? And and the reason, I believe, is because it makes it more relatable to all the Pharisees. The Pharisees are his primary audience here. And when he says there's a rich man who dressed in fancy clothes and ate fancy food, they want to picture that being themselves. In fact, until it gets to the man's death, I would dare say that most of the Pharisees listening say, I want to be that guy. That's the guy I want to be like. So it makes, if you add a name to it, then it's a specific person, but for with no name, then the Pharisees can relate more easily. Well, he habitually dressed in purple. This is a lavish fabric. In fact, the most lavish fabric. It was worn by royalty. And it was very expensive. And the reason it was expensive, because there was a rare muscle from the Phoenician Sea that was purple. And they would get that muscle and they would, they would squeeze the pigments out of it and use it to dye this fabric. And it took a lot of these muscles to dye a fabric. And the deeper the purple, the more muscles you would need to dye it. So it became very, very expensive. So only typically only royalty would wear it. So if you saw somebody wearing purple, you would say, that's a very important person. That's either royalty or a very wealthy man. In this case, a very wealthy man. And he wore fine linen, probably made in Egypt because that's where the finest linen was made at the time. He, In other words, we might say it this way, he wore designer clothing. I don't know a lot of designers. The most famous designer I know is Jacques Pinet. You might know him. Never mind. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. The rest of you will catch that later. People would see him and they would notice when he walked down the street. He'd dress like a million bucks. And he joyously living in splendor every day. He was able to make to use his money to make his life what he wanted it to be. He never looked at his budget and said, well, you just can't do that. Oh, I'd like to do that. I just can't afford it. He said, hey, whatever my heart desires, I'll just, I'll just get. I'll make my life everything I want it to be. He was living his best life now. Life was a party. He was the guest of honor. It was a carefree life. He was, we might say, living the dream. He lived in a mansion. Well, how do we know that? Well, he had a gate. And in that day and age, he didn't have a house with a gate unless it was a fancy house. He was not just rich, he was filthy rich. He had some religious understanding, he knew a little bit. 
He knew something about Abraham. He's going to call him Father Abraham. He's a good Jew. He understands something about Abraham, about the law. He recognizes eventually that his brothers need to repent. So he's got that much understanding. So he acknowledges God, but he adores gold. His first love is wealth. It's not the word. His He's striving for material goods, not spiritual growth. And his measure of his life is a standing before men, not a standing before God. Then there's the poor man, verse 20. And the poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. Lazarus' name, by the way, means God has helped. And he was a sad sight. He's unable to walk. Somebody had to carry him and lay him at the gate. Laying at the side of the gate, hoping when the gate opens and closes, when the rich man leaves or comes, that he would be there to help him in some way, give him something, give him some life-sustaining food. Rather than being covered in purple robes, the poor man is covered in sores. And he's starving to death. Verse 21 says, And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. The one thing the poor man could count on having every day were hunger pains. I don't know what it, that would, how hungry you have to be. Can you imagine being so hungry that you're willing to crawl on the floor under somebody's table and pick up crumbs? That you're so hungry that you'll eat crumbs. Oh, most of us can't understand that. Most of us have never been so hungry that we'll eat anything. Most of us are still picky about what we'll eat. We look at something and go, I don't want that. Even when we say we're starving, which for most Americans is about every three hours. I'm just starving to death. I look like I'm starving, don't I? I'm starving. Now, I don't want that. And then you're not really hungry. How hungry do you have to be to be so I'll, I'll crawl on the floor and eat crumbs. If that weren't bad enough, verse 21 continues, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And dogs in that day were not domesticated animals that were used as pets with cute little names. They were mangy pack animals that, that were wild and dug in the garbage and, and, uh, and attacked whatever they could to try to get food. And here they are attracted to the smell of the open sores on Lazarus' body and they licking the blood from the wounds on his body. What a pathetic sight. He's an emaciated cripple with open sores covering his body, leaning against the wall, too weak to shoo wild dogs away. Begging, hoping that the rich man will walk by and say... Here's some crumbs for you. The two men couldn't be more different. Not only were they distinct in life, they were distinct in death. Verse 22, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Poor man dies. Few noticed, less cared. Nobody would have buried him. He would have been treated like garbage. He would have been thrown on the city garbage dump in the Valley of Hinnom that was where they burned the garbage. No one would have attended his angel or attended his service. 
but he was attended to by angels. And the rich man died. Now you can bet it was a first class funeral. You can bet that it was more lavish than any funeral anybody had ever seen. There were probably hundreds of mourners there. You would hire professional mourners. And the wealthier the family, the more mourners they would hire. There were probably hundreds of mourners there lamenting his death. A beautifully carved tomb where he would be laid. He would have been wrapped in the finest linen covered in hundreds of pounds of burial spices. And they would have put his body in there. Everyone would have noticed his death. His life would have been praised. His death would have been mourned. They couldn't have been more distinct in life and more distinct in death, but the greatest distinction is going to come after death. They were distinct in eternity. Verse 23, in Hades, this is to the rich man, in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. In life the poor man was carried and laid at the gate of the rich man in death. He was carried from by the angels into heaven. In life, the poor man begged for crumbs from the rich man. In death, he's carried to a feast besides Abraham. The rich man had everything he wanted in life. found himself being tormented in death. Now for the Pharisees, this is the most shocking part of the parable. Because they believe that wealth means righteousness. They were wealthy. They think that's God's stamp of approval. Poor is God's curse. You might remember when Jesus is walking through Jerusalem with the disciples and they come by the temple and there's a poor man begging there. And the disciples even ask, Jesus, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? See, they're even there, they're, they've bought into this thought that if there's something wrong with a person, if they're, if they're crippled, if they're poor, if they're blind, uh, that's because of some sin. And if they're wealthy, well, that's because they're righteous. So for the Pharisees listening to this, to find out that Lazarus was in heaven would have been shocking, and, and they could have probably justified that somehow, but the fact that the rich man is in hell would just totally blow away their thinking. Wait a minute, that doesn't happen. The only rich people that go to hell would be tax collectors because they're thieves. The Pharisees would have assumed that the, the rich man was right and Lazarus was wicked. They were no different than Job's sorry counselors when Job had lost everything, would have said to Job, Job, you've lost everything. Your body's covered with sores. Clearly you're not right with God. So if you just get things right with God, God would restore everything. The Pharisees were the original prosperity preachers. They saw wealth as God's stamp of approval. In the parable of the shrewd manager, the parable just prior to this, Jesus showed the disciples that the proper use of worldly wealth is to invest in the eternal. In this parable, he's showing the lost Pharisees that their worldly wealth was not a sign of God's favor. That worldly wealth does not transfer into eternity. The rich man dies and immediately finds himself in hell. And Lazarus, a long way off in Abraham's bosom. Now many of you have been taught that Abraham's bosom is a location. It's a waiting place. It's an interim place between uh, now or between uh, 
then and the resurrection of Christ or something along those lines. And it's not an actual place. He's speaking about the, the proximity of Abraham to Lazarus or Lazarus to Abraham, that Abraham or Lazarus was leaning against the chest of Abraham. They're at a meal. And in that day and age, to help you understand, they laid on pillows or cushions on the ground. Table was in the center. All the people's heads were towards the center. They would lay on their left side because most people were right-handed. They could use their right hand to reach the food. And they lay on their left side with their heads towards the center and their feet out like the spokes of a wheel, the table being the hub and their bodies being the spokes. And they would lay around the circle and each person would be leaning against the person next to them so you could get more people around the table if you needed, depending on the size of the table. The same terminology is used of John, the Apostle's proximity to Jesus at the Last Supper. John 13, starting verse 21, says, When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking of. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is who you're speaking. He, that's John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? So John is laying, Jesus is behind him, he kind of leans back into his chest and asks him who it is. In John 1.18, Jesus says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So a similar terminology there, just showing the proximity of the Son and the Father, the closeness of the Son and the Father. So it's not a location, it's a, it's a relationship to where Lazarus was in relation to where Abraham was. But to drive home his point, Jesus allows the audience to look through a skylight into hell and, and for the Pharisees to see what awaits them. And what awaits them in hell is first we see is conscious torment. Conscious torment. The, the rich man knew what was going on. He was aware. He felt the torment. Verse 24. And he cared, cried out saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I'm in agony in this flame. This man who showed no mercy to the, to the Poor man, while he was alive, desires mercy in eternity. He wouldn't give a crumb from his table to Lazarus, yet he wants Lazarus to dip his finger in water and put a drop on his tongue. He also thinks that apparently that Lazarus is a second class citizen, even in heaven. Notice he doesn't say, Abraham, come and dip your finger in water and cool my tongue. He says, send Lazarus to do it. He's still a second class citizen. He's a slave kind of guy. You have him do it. In this conscious torment, the rich man knows he deserves hell. He doesn't cry out, Father Abraham, why am I here? I don't understand. I don't know why I'm here. I was a Pharisee. I was wealthy. Why did I end up here? And he doesn't say, uh, you know, get me out of here. Father Abraham, rescue me from this place. He knows he belongs there. He knows he deserves it for eternity. He's just seeking some relief. None will come. Those who wake up in hell know why they're there. And there is no hope. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that 
during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is, be, is being comforted here and you are in agony. This great reversal has taken place. Jesus is neither here condemning nor condoning poverty nor wealth. He is not saying that the rich man is in hell because he was rich and Lazarus is in hell because he was poor. Neither poverty nor wealth is a virtue nor a curse. Specifically here, earthly wealth is not a sign from heaven. The rich man didn't go to hell because he was rich. He went to hell because he didn't put his faith and trust in the God of the Bible. And Lazarus went to heaven not because he was poor, but because he did trust the law and the prophets and did put his faith in God. The rich man had done nothing to alleviate the suffering of Lazarus in life and in eternity. Lazarus can't do anything to alleviate the suffering of the rich man. Verse 26, Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Jesus is not trying to give a a map of where hell is in relation to heaven, this is to give us the understanding that one is eternal and there's no, they're both eternal and you can't go from one to the other and to explain those things. And we already know from the book of Revelation that after the last judgment, death and hell or Hades is taken and thrown into the lake of fire, which is a different location. Both are punished by fire. Immediately after death, the the unbeliever wakes up in hell being tormented, waiting for that eternal judgment that will be the lake of fire. The principle is that there's no crossing from one place to the other. God has fixed or established, set an immovable separation between the two places. No one is getting out of hell. No one from heaven can go to hell and rescue them. There's no back door out of hell. There's no secret passage. No one is going to find the way out. There's no chance for those who go to hell to be rescued. There's no chance for them to escape. There's no parole. There's no commuting the sentence. There's no pardons. The torment is inescapable and it is eternal. Not only is this a warning to the unbeliever, as it is here, in the context of which Jesus is saying, it's a, it's a warning to the Pharisees. But it's also a wake-up call to the believer. That we recognize the reality of hell and that people will go there. People we know and love that don't know Christ are going to spend eternity in hell. If we cannot remove them from hell's flames, we cannot comfort them. We should at least plead with them while we can. So they don't go there. One who enters hell it loses all hope forever. So if God is going to use us to rescue people from the flames of hell, we've got to do it now. So moms and dads, if you have sons or daughters that don't know Christ and you want them to know Christ, you need to tell them now. You need to beg them now to come to saving faith because when they die, it's too late. If you have a mother or a father who's not a believer, you need to plead with them now. If you have a brother or sister 
or a friend or a neighbor that you want to come to know Christ, you need to reason with them now. We don't have time to waste. Maybe it's your husband or your wife. Plead with them while they're still alive. Now I realize that salvation is the result of God's grace. I realize that I can't talk someone into being saved. They must be called by God to be saved. I get that. I understand that. But that does not mean we don't beg people, plead with people, reason with people. In Acts chapter 17, verse 2, in Acts chapter 18, verse 4, Paul reasoned with unbelievers, tried to explain to them, answer their objections. In Acts 21, verse 39, Paul begged for the opportunity to give his salvation testimony to an angry crowd. In Acts 26, verse 3, Paul begged Herod Agrippa to listen to his salvation testimony. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope we are made manifest also in your consciences. He said, we persuade men. We know what's coming. We know the wrath of God that is coming upon unbelievers. For that reason, we persuade people. We don't just give them the gospel and leave them on their own like it's no big deal. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he elaborates and says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul uses the terms there and plead and beg and be reconciled. Tell them, convince them. After they die, it's too late. We need to tell them now. And listen to the language that Paul uses. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ. Paul is saying it is if Jesus Himself is begging you to come to saving faith. I submit to you that Paul understood the doctrine of salvation much better than any of us do. And he was not afraid to say, I convince people, I plead with people, I beg people, I tell people, I warn people, I want them to hear the gospel and hear the urgency in my voice. I want them to know. In his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards said, quote, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, end quote. Can you get the picture? A pit covered with wood that is corroding, that is rotten, is creaking when you step on it, just waiting for it to snap and fall under the weight. This is the stark reality that moved the rich man to his next appeal in verses 27 and 28. He said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. Send Lazarus to warn my brothers. I don't want them to come here. Every person who has ever died desires the same things. If they're in heaven, they desire everyone they know to come there. If they're in hell, they desire that no one they know goes there. This rich man is saying, God, Abraham, please send 
Lazarus, so my brothers don't end up in this same torment. But Lazarus would not be sent. They have a warning already. All they needed to do was listen to the Word of God. They already had Moses and the prophets. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They've already got something to listen to. They have it in their hand, they can read it. But here's the response. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Apparently the rich man still thinks he knows more than God, even in death. Oh, if you just send Lazarus back from the dead, that'll be enough to convince them. That'll, that miracle, not the Word of God, they need to see that miracle. And Abraham's response in verse 31, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. The rejection of the Scripture will not be undone, even if somebody comes back from the dead. Obviously, this is a foreshadow of the resurrection of Christ. The Pharisees did not turn to Christ even after He resurrected. They just said, they got together and said, how do we cover this up? After Jesus rose from the dead and it was undeniable, they had to come up with some way to explain it. Well, the, the disciples came and stole the body. The Pharisees were trusting in their own brand of religion. They thought they knew more than God knew. They thought they could keep things from God about their own heart. But the truth was they desired what God hated. They denied what God offered. They distorted what God said all the time thinking that they were just fine. Thinking they were on course. No danger. We're going to reach our destination because we're going the right direction. And they were miles off the mark. In reality, they were standing over the pit of hell on rotten wood. It was just a matter of time. They would die and spend eternity in hell, not because they were rich and not because they didn't do enough for the poor when they were alive, but because they did not trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. It's appointed to man to die once. And after this comes judgment. If you don't trust Christ to forgive your sin and save your soul in this life, you will spend eternity in hell with no escape and no hope. If you're going to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you must do it on this earth while there's time. That means if you're sitting out here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to come to Him by faith today. Don't wait. You are standing over the pit of hell on rotten wood. Listen to the warning of Charles Spurgeon. He said, Some of my hearers who listened to me last year in the years that are past are now, now in hell. Now where no hope will come. Now where no gospel shall ever be preached. Now where they bitterly regret their wasted Sabbaths and despised opportunities. Now where memory holds a dreadful rain reminding them of all their sins. Now where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, where they gnaw their tongues in pain. 
now where God's fury is manifested to the full of Tophet's hideous fire. That's what awaits those who don't come to faith in Christ on this earth. The doctrine of hell is a crucial portion of the gospel. It's why Jesus died. If there's no hell, there's no reason for the sacrificial death of Christ. But he did, he did die that sacrificial death so that you and I would not have to spend eternity in hell, but we could have our sins forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And here he's making an appeal to anyone who doesn't know him to come to faith while you can. Because after you die, it's too late. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your grace and your mercy. And Father, that you sent your Son to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin, that we might know the forgiveness of sin, the righteousness of Christ, and eternity with you in heaven. Father, may we never forget that hell is real. And while it's not fun to think about, it is crucial that we recognize that all those people we know and love that don't know you are on their way to hell. Father, there are so many religious people who are miles off course. And Father, we pray that you would use us to point them to Christ and saving faith. Father, thank you that somebody told us about the gospel. Be it a family member, a parent, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a missionary. Father, thank you that someone told us the truth of the gospel. And that you worked in our hearts, bringing us to saving faith. Father, we pray that today for anyone that is here, be they a child, be they an adult, that Lord, if they don't know you as Lord and Savior, that you would open up their eyes to that reality, draw them to yourself, that they may be saved and escape the flames of hell. Father, we pray that you'll do a mighty work that only you can do. Father, use us. We probably all have a family member that doesn't know you. We all have friends that don't know you. Use us, Father. Give us boldness and courage to give the gospel to a lost and dying world, to our lost family members, our lost friends. Father, let us not be embarrassed or shy, but loving and bold. And Father, you may use us to get the gospel to those who desperately need it. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.